Hunter Biden has been indicted on tax fraud charges. He could face up to 42 years in prison. Let's not hold our breath. And this was not supposed to happen. This was being totally covered up by the DOJ. As we reported extensively, this only took place, this indictment, because of two brave IRS whistleblowers who came forward and exposed the cover-up by the Biden DOJ. We have all the details of this indictment coming up. But listen, let's not get too excited. We've How many times have we seen Democrats get indicted but then get acquitted? Plus, President Trump is accusing Casey DeSantis, the wife of Ron DeSantis, of spreading election disinformation. Trump says that Casey DeSantis, and it's a very compelling case, that that she falsely claimed that voters out who live who live outside of Iowa are allowed to come and vote in the Iowa caucuses, even though they're not residents of Iowa. And that's completely false. That's completely illegal. I'm going to play you that clip, and you can decide for yourself if that's what Casey DeSantis meant. Welcome to the Aquavam Show on VIN News, Yeshiva International, Nucky Radio. Send us an email, josh at vinnews.com, josh at vinnews.com. And, of course, we begin with the president of U of Penn, president of University of Pennsylvania, Liz McGill, who has been forced to resign. Thankfully, what a disgraceful human being. And now, of course, we're waiting for the other two, these other two disgraces, the head of Harvard, the head of MIT, they're under immense pressure to resign as well after that vicious, vicious display of theirs at the congressional hearing last week. And at least Stefanik asked them point blank. They were all asked point blank. And so Liz McGill's been forced to resign. I could not be happier. She had this smug, condescending attitude as she sat there spewing vicious anti-Semitism, sat there condoning the call for genocide of Jews and all of these three, the head of Harvard, MIT, and U of Penn, were asked point blank in Congress, does promoting genocide of Jews, is that considered harassment? Is that considered a violation of your school policies? And they sat there with these blank looks on their faces. They sat there looking down on Elise Stefan, almost like mocking her, ridiculing her, making fun of her, refusing to say they kept saying it depends. It depends on the context. It depends on the context. Uh, if someone, if a student calls for Israel to be wiped off the map, does that violate your school's policy? Do you consider that harassment? Oh, it depends on the context. Well, what exactly is the context where it's acceptable and not harassment and not a violation of school policy to call for the genocide of a particular group of people, of a nation. I mean, it's just unbelievable how they can sit there with a straight... And the fact that they don't even really... Even if they think this way, but the fact that they're so clueless and they're and they're living in their bubble and their alternate reality of theirs and their the despise and their hatred of Jews, that they, it doesn't even occur to them how it's going to look sitting there on nationally televised. This clip is going to be everywhere. And you're sitting there actually saying this publicly, not even... It doesn't even dawn on you. Oh, wait a second. Even if I think this, it looks awful. It looks really, really, really insane. So, look, give credit to Congresswoman Elise Stefanik because she exposed this three, these three elitist academics, these Ivy League presidents, sitting there. It depends on the context. It depends on the context. Well, I, and by the way, they're talking about freedom of speech. No, you got to love. And we'll get into this. What their excuses were, their lame, pathetic explanations, clarifications. Because freedom of speech, these colleges have zero freedom of speech. If you sit there and you talk down on minorities, if you talk against blacks, if you talk about against the woke agenda, if you believe that there are two genders and there, there's so many other things, you know, if you if if you start uh, talking about BLM in a negative way or minorities or anything, and you attack wokeness, and they will suspend you so quickly and they will cancel you and. Exp- 
expel you, throw you out. They will give you all sorts of penalties. So colleges are the last place. There is zero freedom of speech. They will not allow a conservative to ever come in and lecture or anything along those lines or conservative students or students group, groups for that matters. They literally uh, believe in censorship and believe in total suppression of freedom of speech more than anybody else. They don't give me the, the freedom of speech bogus argument. But, well, you know, if students say genocide, intifada, the, the, from the river to the sea, well, let's see, we have to analyze. Well, what are they saying? Well, what is the context there? I mean, when they call for genocide and they call for wiping Israel off the map, what exactly did they mean? What was it in response to? We have to sit and pick it up. It, it, and, and Stefanik said it so well. She said, this is the easiest question. Here's the answer. Yes, calling for genocide is harassment. It is the simplest answer ever. Imagine if it were blacks. Imagine if she said, calling for the elimination of black people. Is that considered harassment? Would they sit there and say, well, it it, it might be. Depends on the context. And then the defense. The defense is, in a certain sense, even worse than the actual comments to begin with. And the comments were beyond disgraceful, and everybody pretty much with you know with a brain understands that, which is why they're being, you know, $100 million was withheld from U of Penn until McGill was forced to resign, and the money does talk. The money here, obviously, is very, very influential. But here's what McGill said. The next day, okay, when she started to realize the mop-up job, she started to realize how much trouble, and obviously, any kind of clarification or apology, and she didn't apologize, but even if they do apologize, it's a joke, it's bogus, it's it's, it's a fake apology, because they're just doing it. The apology is, wow, I'm sorry, I, I regret getting myself in so much hot water and so much trouble, and I just ruined my career. So I'm going to come and try to backtrack. That's all that is. It's fake. But even that, even that she got wrong, because she said, number one, I believe in free expression. Okay, she doesn't believe in free in, in, in free expression. expression. Then she said, well, I got carried away with the idea of free speech and free expression. You literally will cancel. Anybody thinks there's two genders, you cancel them. If anybody speaks pro-Trump or MAGA or goes to a MAGA rally, you will literally throw them out of school. They despise free speech, as I said earlier. They suspend, you know, students who don't support their agenda. The other defense that she said, she said, well, I was overprepared and overlawyered. The lawyers, they, they trained us too much. We were thinking too, too, in too much of a technical way and too legally. We we're thinking in terms of technical and legal and legalities. So we didn't realize that calling for genocide is against school policy. How insane is that? What kind of a pathetic excuse? What she should be saying is she should be saying, man, I'm so sorry. I'm so incredibly sorry. I, 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 what I said was so dumb and so wrong and so anti-Semitic and I, I regret it and I had a moment of brain lapse and sorry, 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 sorry. Just get up there and just regret and remorse and just literally just, uh, just, just, just uh, own up to the fact that your comments were heinous and vicious and disgraceful. No, no, no. I, I believe in free speech, so I got a little carried away, and the lawyers trained me too much. So I lost sight of the fact, the big picture here, that calling for Jewish genocide is against school policy and is considered constitutes harassment. It's it's just unbelievable how, like, the, the clarification, what are you possibly saying? What are you saying? And here's where it comes from. This mindset comes from the fact that these universities, these colleges, these educators, these elitists, these academics, they have no morality. There is no moral compass. There's no conscience. They care about one thing, diversity, okay? Whites are evil. Jews are evil. This is a fact. This is what's going on. And they're all living in their bubble. So this is why they can get up there in Congress on TV and announce this publicly and not even realize how it's going to come across because they're so out of touch with the reality. They're in an alternate universe. They're literally, they have created their own. It looks like they're living in our world. They're not. So whites are evil, Jews are evil, Asians are evil. Minorities are always right. Minorities are always the victims. And even if they're terrorists and even if they're Hamas. 
And that's their code of ethics. And like I said, that's the only explanation for why they're on national television and saying the things that they're saying, which sounds so insane to any normal person, rational human being. And even if they think it, but they never doesn't occur to them. Oh, wait a second. What I'm saying is crazy. So and like I said, the clarification, the lawyers confused me. I mean, these pathetic excuses. It's unbelievable. All right. So the United States has asked Israel and let's see, hopefully the head of Harvard and the head of MIT are next. And again, they're going to just be replaced with these other Ivy Leaguers. They all think the same way. It's not as though these people are like some kind of exception or anomaly. So this doesn't really solve the problem. It's nice to win the battle. And it's good to expose these people know who we're dealing with. But this is so systemic and really such a major, major problem. United States has asked Israel, Biden, President Biden has asked Israel, the Israel lover, I keep hearing how much he supports Israel, how deeply, deeply he cares about Israel's well-being. Well, he has asked Israel not to respond to the Houthi rebels, okay? And the Houthi rebels, they're literally attacking Israeli ships. They're attacking civilian ships, cargo ships. And I never remember this. Houthis used to always attack the the Yemeni government. That was it. That was Iran's proxy against Yemen. Houthis are based in Yemen. Now the Houthis have become like Hezbollah and Hamas and Islamic Jihad. And they're a wing of Iran that's now targeting Israel. And Biden says to Israel, do not respond. Remember, he doesn't want this to escalate. That is Biden's agenda, plain and simple. So he's telling Israel, don't mess with Hezbollah. Hezbollah right now, they are attacking, targeting and killing Israelis. And now the Houthis are literally boarding uh, Israeli-owned cargo ships, and they are attacking these Israeli-owned cargo ships. And the, Biden says to Israel, don't do this because we don't want this to escalate. We don't want this to become a broader, and they're not even hiding it, a broader war that will include Iran. I mean, and, and the proof is, by the way, that America's own troops, I mean, there's been 75, we're going to get to this a little bit later. Iran has attacked uh, U.S. troops again. There has been over 75, there's been, I believe, to date, 77 since October 17th, 77 attacks by Iran against uh, U- United States forces, and Biden has thrown his own people under the bus. He refuses to retaliate against Iran. In fact, even worse, he is retaliating, but the retaliation is so pitifully weak, and it's just a token retaliation, sending a signal to Iran, hey, keep it coming. I, I want to mention, all right, I'll, g- I'll get back to this in a minute. I have a thought, just a random thought, not not related to politics. Uh, stir things up a little bit. You know, I just wanted to share, vent a little bit, but uh, we'll get to a little bit later. It has to do with shuls and uh, Galila, and specifically children doing, you know, Hagman Galila, children doing Galila. So uh, it's going to be out of left field. You're not going to think, of, you're not going to predict, I think, where I'm coming from here, but we'll get to that shortly. But uh, but first, uh, a listener left me a voicemail, and or actually sent me an email and said, at joshadvinnews.com, and said, climate deniers, signs, and he made the point, good point, you know, they they talk about people like Trump and people like we mentioned that UAE, that Arab Emirates person who headed the climate conference, who says we should not ban all fossil fuels. And there's no science to back that up. And they call him a science denier denier and a climate denier, right? You're a science denier, you're a climate denier, climate change denier. Because if you don't believe in what they believe in, you're a climate denier. So the listener made the point that it, it's what they almost make it out to be like the Holocaust, where this is like something which is so factual to them. And that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to paint this image that if you don't believe in climate change and you don't believe in global warming, global warming, then you're a denier. You're denying the reality. It's almost like you're revising history and you're evil and you're somebody who denies like similar to denying the Holocaust. And that's literally the term they invoke. We don't hear this too often about too many things. OK, I don't even remember if they use the term covid denier. Maybe they did. Maybe they did not. But that, that's a great point is that to, it's disgraceful. It's egregious. It is absolutely inexcusable to equate something like climate change and global warming 
which the science does not necessarily back it up. There is no consensus. There's a lot of it's very controversial. And uh, and, and, and even if you assume it's a problem, it's nowhere near anything of uh, even like, uh, I mean, it's not a doesn't hold a candle. I mean, it's not a tiny, tiny shred, a microscopic shred of what the Holocaust was. It doesn't even need to be said. I feel even uncomfortable just saying even these words. But I think I have to make the point the caller made, which is that's like they they turn it into this, you know, idol worship where they turn it into like this is if if you don't believe in climate change, then you're you, you believe the earth is flat. That is their goal. That is their narrative. Now, what's incredible is Think about the fact that there's no scientific consensus on anything. There's no scientific consensus on the common cold. There's no scientific consensus on mask wearing as far as preventing COVID, preventing the flu. They still, you know, there's still a lot of scientists out there who don't believe that Sweden got it right. Sweden did not lock down. And, you know, the Great Barrington Declaration, we're not rehashing all the COVID stuff right now, but many scientists, very, very big top scientists, people who know much more about infectious disease than the heads of the CDC and then, and then Dr. Fauci. And these were experts, Oxford, Harvard, MIT. And they said, do not lock down. Locking down is the worst thing because it'll never create herd immunity. And places like Sweden, again, we're not going to rehash all the details, all the data, but you know, Sweden had a lot, had a much better situation than a lot of other countries that locked down. Florida had a much better uh, much better numbers than places like New York and New Jersey, which locked down. So the data, the scientists, there was no consensus. To this day, there's no consensus. You ask 12 different scientists, you'll almost get like 12 different answers. So there are so many basic scientific things that they know nothing about. I mean, and, and, and it goes on and on. You know, sugar, how bad is sugar for you? Salt, sodium, uh, diet. Is it good to have a low-carb diet, high-carb diet? Uh, there's a million and one certain medicines, certain medical treatments. There are so many areas of science. The scientists, they simply are so lacking. And there are so many areas they do not have answers and they do not know. And then they get it wrong and their predictions are wrong. And and they, and, and they, they got all their projections wrong about COVID. And should, you should wear masks. You shouldn't wear masks. You should lock down. You should not lock down. Now you have this virus going around. Hopefully it's not this mystery pneumonia affecting children in China. Hopefully it's not, a, you know, another pandemic. Hopefully it's nothing even remotely like that. But but remember how the scientists, they just do not know how to predict. Their predictions are wrong again and again. So then to go and tell me, oh, but climate change is real and it's man-made and fossil fuels and we know how to solve it. They've gotten it wrong again and again. And why on earth should we believe them about anything, let alone something like climate change and global warming, which is so complex and the data is totally, totally um, inconclusive. And there's thousands of scientists who don't believe in it. And then there's the lab leak theory. It, so like it's ridiculous. The idea that like climate change is a fact is a foregone conclusion is ridiculous. A couple of points. Number one, I'm not convinced that the globe is warming because even if there is a trend in recent years that the globe is warming, it might just be cyclical and it could be it warms, it cools, it warms, it cools. Number two, even if it, it is warming, who says that it's man-made? And most importantly, you know, maybe it's even being exacerbated. Maybe the lack of pollution and the lack of fossil fuels are actually accelerating global warming as we, as you know, we spelled out scientific research that actually supports the fact that eliminating pollution actually increases global warming. So we've said that based on scientific data. So, you know, and the scientists who say, no, climate change, global warming, man-made, they, remember, they don't want to get fired. They don't want to get canceled. They want to make sure to get hired and they want to earn a living and make money. So they'll sign a document because they have no choice, okay? And then Trump comes along and this Arab oil tycoon, and they say, uh, it's not true. Look at look at look at all the scientists. It's made up, you know, and they say, oh, Trump is a caveman. 
and they just gaslight us. So, and, and think about this, okay? January 6th, right? The January 6th, somebody else made this point a few months ago that January 6th, you know how many hours of footage, there's thousands and thousands of hours of video footage on January 6th. We have a lot of it. We don't have all of it. And we're all looking at the same footage and you literally cannot get a consensus. You literally had hundreds of people there. We have, we have video footage. We're all looking at the same videos and some people say, oh, look at these rioters. Look at these people. They breached the Capitol. They should go to throw them in jail for forever. And then we say, or many of us say, look at, look at what's going on here. They were egged on. They were FBI agents planted in the crowd and they, they, they literally did nothing wrong. They were escorted in and it was the fault of the Capitol Police for allowing it to get out of hand. And we're looking at the same video footage and have two different interpretations. So if you can look at the same videos and this happens again and again. Uh, you know, and we look at the same set of facts and interpret it a totally different way. But like climate change, global warming, man-made, oh, scientific consensus, hundreds of thousands of scientists all agree there is no debate. So these people are climate deniers. So I thought that was a really great point. All right. Uh, the Hunter Biden indictment. Let's not get too excited because, remember, Durham indicted all those Democrats. And it almost in almost all cases and there were other indictments as well. And it almost never goes anywhere. That's just the fact. Democrats don't get put in jail. But, okay, we can still be optimistic here, and there's very few Democrats as bad as Hunter Biden. Between the gun charges, and we'll, we'll lay this out for you here, the tax, you know about the gun charges where he lied uh, on his uh, gun application. And amazing, the Democrats, they, they tell us they care about gun control, not letting guns get in the wrong hands, and Hunter Biden, the, the cocaine addict, and the, the disgrace you know, deplorable human being. He should never be allowed to own a gun. And he lied about being adri- addicted to drugs on this gun application. So the Democrats should be the ones who are outraged. But of course, his name is Biden. So between the tax evasion, evasion charges and the gun charges, he's eligible to be sentenced up to 42 years. Um, so here's what the indictment says. It says Hunter Biden avoided paying $1.4 million in taxes. By the way, he avoided more, but they let the statute of limitations run out on some of the older charges. But $1.4 million in taxes, that wasn't his earnings. That was the amount he owed in taxes. He avoided that money, okay? He evaded those taxes. And that was on money that he was receiving from Ukraine, Romania, and China. And, of course, we know why he, look, he didn't want to pay the taxes because he, he, the man is just a criminal and he's corrupt. But he also didn't want to report the fact that as the, the VP's son, he was collecting money from all these places. And, of course, influenced the federal government and, and you know, corruption peddling and all of that influence peddling, but um, it, it, it's that that's one part of this, but he didn't even pay. Eventually, he paid up the taxes. No, he did not, because actually, it turns out that a Hollywood, a rich, a wealthy supporter of Joe Biden, his father in Hollywood, a celebrity in Hollywood, he's the one who ended up pay, paying Hunter Biden's taxes. So Hunter Biden, he wasted, he blew all the money, wasted all the money. So according to this indictment, um, Biden, he avoided payroll taxes from his company, which was getting paid off these millions, and we know why. Um, from Ukraine, Romania, and China, and he avoided the withholding, tax withholding, and the payroll taxes. He withdrew millions of dollars from the company, did not pay taxes on that, and according from the indictment, then Hunter Biden spent millions of dollars on, ex- on an extravagant lifestyle rather than paying the taxes he owed. Taxes he owed. 2018, he, he failed to pay his 2016, 2017, 2018, 2019 taxes on time. Um, and as I said, he also failed to pay his 2014, 2015 taxes on time, but the statute of limitations ran out because the IRS, uh, intentionally slow walked the investigation. Um, when he did finally file his 2018 returns, he included false business deductions. So Byron York says that, and so I think he, I think there were nine counts here, including a few felonies, nine counts of tax evasion, 
charges. Now, conservative Byron York, okay, he's a conservative columnist, and he says that this vindicates the whistleblowers. These indictments vindicate the whistleblowers, right? Because remember what happened was, we'll read you some of the details here, and we covered this at the time extensively. Gary Shapley and Joseph Ziegler, IRS whistleblowers, they were fired. They were investigating Hunter Biden uh, tax evasion, and they were fired when they came out and blew the whistle and said uh, that the prosecutor is not being allowed. The DOJ is not allowing Biden's own DOJ, Merrick Garland. He's not allowing the prosecutor, a Trump appointed prosecutor, but he's not allowing him to indict Hunter Biden. They're covering up the charges. The whistleblowers came out, the Democrats and Biden, they threw the whistleblowers under the bus and they actually, they accused the whistleblowers of being the bad guys and they demonized the whistleblowers. So it's pretty amazing. And now, of course, obviously now the, the truth has come out and the indictment has come out and it turns out the whistleblowers are 100% right and they are vindicated. But what they had to go through, the abuse they had to go through because they were being honest and they couldn't take the fact that they were seeing. And that's what happened. They first came forward and said, this whole thing's being covered up. It's being suppressed. Hunter Biden committed all these crimes. They knew about it. And the DOJ is not letting the the prosecutor um, indict Hunter, and they were demonized, and they were fired. Merrick Garland, imagine if Trump did that. Imagine if Trump's attorney general fired the people investigating him, which just would have been a, a total nightmare. But uh, but that's exactly what Biden and Merrick Garland did. Merrick Garland, Biden's AG, fired the whistleblowers who came forward and said, this whole thing's a massive cover-up. So here's some, some quotes here from Byron York. Remember when two IRS whistleblowers came forward to charge that the Biden administration gave the president's son, Hunter, special treatment in the investigation into his business? Uh, Gary Shapley and Joseph Ziegler, both were deeply involved in the Hunter Biden investigation, offered proof the IRS had an open and shut case that Hunter Biden evaded taxes on large amounts of money that he made from foreign sources. But the U.S. AG's office in Delaware would not, and the DOJ would not pursue it. Both men were removed from the case in retaliation for having the temerity to point out the inaction. Capitol Hill Democrats sought to dismiss the whistleblower's allegations, and uh, they said investigators are often gung-ho, but DOJ prosecutors have to measure carefully whether criminal cases warranted. So, so the Democrats in Congress, they said, no, these whistleblowers, they totally dismissed the whole thing and said, oh, you know, they're just being overly aggressive. But the DOJ, they're being rational. And the Democrats said no charges were warranted against Hunter Biden. Well, the facts were the facts. And Shapley and Ziegler's testimony supported the Republican charge. DOJ officials stifled and slow walked the investigation. The GOP forced the U.S. attorney, David Weiss, who was leading the investigation to seek special counsel status. And that gave him the freedom to resume the investigation and not, you know, have the DOJ suppress it. The indictment is now a complete vindication of the IRS whistleblowers. It literally follows the outline that Shapley and Ziegler set out. And the indictment goes, goes through Hunter Biden's more egregious alleged conduct. The short version is between 2016 and 2020, Hunter Biden spent money on drugs, luxury hotels, rental properties, exotic cars, clothing, and other items of a personal personal nature. In short, he spent money on everything but the taxes he owed. Same thing with 2014 and 2015, but the department stalled, and therefore the statute of limitations expired. It was not easy. The two whistleblowers had to work around the obstacles the Delaware U.S. Attorney's Office placed in their path. Quote, they deserve credit for more than just blowing the whistle on Delaware U.S. Attorney's uh, Office pulling punches in the case. They also deserve credit for putting the case together in the first place despite having roadblocks because the IRS team worked the case for years, methodically overcoming every hurdle thrown in their path. Um, after apologizing to Joe and Gary for removing them in retaliation for whistleblowing, David White should thank them for their work, without which he could not have finally brought this indictment. And quote, Hunter faces 42 years, nine tax charges, three gun charges. The gun charges he faces up to 25 years. The, the tax charges up to 17 years. That's certainly not going to happen. I, I'd be shocked if he goes to jail for two or three years. 
because he's, he's Hunter Biden, there might be a plea bargain deal, even though they tried that and that fell apart also because of the whistleblowers. That was a whole fiasco where they tried to basically exonerate him and which, which would have been insane. But look, even if he gets a year or two in jail, you know, it's still very much a validation that, uh, if, if the Republicans force the hand of the DOJ, it, it, justice sometimes can be served. If he spends a day in jail, I'll be pleasantly surprised. I'm still not holding my breath. And Hunter Biden is equating his own um, indictment to persecution similar to Putin, who targets and persecutes his political dissidents and the way the Nazis go after their dissidents and went after their opposition. Literally, Hunter Biden, he equated himself to to, to, to victims of Nazis and and victims of, of, of Vladimir Putin, you know, like uh, like like Alexei Navalny, who get gets poisoned by Vladimir Putin because he's a political opponent. It's unbelievable. Um, yeah. So. All right. One other point about Hunter Biden. Uh, a caller made the following point. Uh, several callers said this because we told you that Hunter Biden actually agreed to testify in Congress, but only if it's a publicly televised hearing. And I said, why would the Republicans and James, you know, I think James Comer, at least Stefanik, I don't know, a bunch of Republicans said, no, 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 we want a, we want a deposition. We want there to be a private deposition, which basically means they can ask him unlimited questions, not a public congressional hearing. And uh, I said, come on, if Hunter Biden wants to come in, go in there, grill him, make it happen. So a bunch of callers made the same point. They said, oh, no, listen, they said, here's here's the reason the Republicans don't want that. And the reason Hunter Biden's lawyers want it is because Hunter would use it. He would twist it around, manipulate it because you have five minutes to question. Every congressman has five minutes to question Hunter Biden. And those five minutes, it's not a long time. It's very limited. And Hunter would stall. He would filibuster, et cetera. And in addition to that, the Democrats can ask questions, too. So they would give him an opportunity to spin the case in his favor to manipulate the facts. So that was their point was the reason the Republicans don't want it is because it's it, it, it's rigged. It's not it, it's not structured in a way that's beneficial to grilling Hunter Biden and forcing him to give real answers, a deposition in private where you have unlimited questions and no Democrats asking the questions, I believe, um, that would be, or at least it's, you know, maybe it's cross-exam, but it's it's not interrupted that way. So that would really, you have a chance to really ask him all the questions you want. That was basically what they said. Listen, I'm not buying it. I, that's true. That's usually how it works. First, you give the private deposition, then you give the public hearing. And that's what Hunter Biden wants to avoid. He doesn't want the private deposition. I get it. But like, what are you telling me? Let's say after the private deposition, right? You'd always want to get him in public, right? I mean, they did it to Comey and they did it to A.G. Barr and they did it on the right and on the left. You always eventually, they do it to Mayorkas. You always have these hearings, Fauci a million times, right? And and it gets you, and look look what just happened now with the congressional hearings with the three Ivy League uh, heads of the university where that 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 also, that you know, they had five minutes and each side could ask questions, but they still, you know, if you ask the if you ask the question strategically in those five minutes, you can do an awful lot with those five minutes. And especially, you know, they come back to them sometimes. We have other Republicans doing. So what, you tell me you would never want to have him on the stand, or you want the deposition first. If you tell me you never want to have a public hearing and televised hearing because Hunter Biden's going to outsmart and outfox the Republicans asking the questions, I'm not buying it. If you have a chance to get him on record and to force him to answer questions, sit there and squirm. You sit, you get them to sit there and squirm. So I don't know if the callers are saying you never want him to do this or you want him to do a deposition in private first and then do this. But if this is going to be the ultimate goal, make it happen. He wants to do it. Call his bluff. And if it's, and, and if it's not the ultimate goal, then what's the goal? How would you not want him to actually be there testifying the way on the hot seat, the way you do, you know, with all these other people? What do they do with the Ivy League, uh, college, uh, heads? All right, Galila, let me get to my uh, little gripe here with, with Galila. And, uh, you know, I'm curious what people, what, what your opinion is on this. Um, when kids do Galila, including my own kids, they'll have a 12 year old or an 11 year old, or even a 13 year old, right? Let's say on Shabbos, they'll tell, they'll, they'll have the boy 
come up and do galila. And what I'll see very often is the boy feels like he's under pressure and nobody is at fault. There's nothing malicious. Everybody means well. But I think, you know, a lot of times the boy, it's it, 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 it's high up and he's small if they're asking a kid. even But even a 13-year-old, even a bar mitzvah boy, uh, very often it, it takes time. They're not able to roll it. Their hands are small. They're shortish, right? So the, the, it takes them time and they'll need help. And I get all of that. And, and, and you want to help them, you can help them. But what I end up seeing a lot of times is the adult, the gabai, and I understand the gabai is antsy and the gabai wants to move things along and there's an Indian of Tirch de Tibura. So I know there's, 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 there's valid reasons for this, but I think it traumatizes boys. I think when boys feel like they're kind of not uh, doing the job themselves, and I don't just mean Galila, it could be like this in a lot of different areas of davening. I think this is a, a, a very touchy subject, in my opinion, where, you know, kids in shul, and it hits on broader issues, and I understand that, but I want to focus on just Galila and similar things where you have a kid do a certain uh, part of the tefillah, and you give him the keyboard, but then he doesn't do it kind of in an adequate way, or he doesn't do it the way we'd want to do it, or he doesn't want to do it fast enough, and he needs help, but then we end up taking over. I've seen this many times, that the adult ends up rolling, and the adult ends up putting the gartel, and the adult ends up putting the cover on, and the adult, like, does it and kind of, instead of the kid, and you think the kid feels good, oh, I did it, no, the kid feels silly, the kid feels like, okay, well, the adult just did it for me, well, but the kid was too short, the kid was this, the kid was that. There are ways to make sure that the kid does it himself, in most scenarios, but the adult is trying to keep things moving, and he thinks he's helping the kid, I don't think it's helping the kid, I'm not talking about the father, I'm talking, the, sometimes it's the father, sometimes it's the gabai, I'm not knocking anybody. I understand where you're coming from. People are impatient. Davening's taking a long time sometimes, and you're worried that it, it could sit there going on and on, and people are going to blame you, and you have you have a responsibility. It's coming from a good place. So we have a couple of things here to pick apart, but I think that it hurts a kid's feelings. I think that it makes a kid feel bad. I'm not saying when you when you, when you help, you, you want to help him put the guy to the right place, you want to help him roll, but sometimes you take over. And that's my problem. I've seen it happen too many times. And I feel like it's putting pressure on the kid. And that's the worst part. The kid feels like a, a little bit of a failure. He feels like he didn't do it right. In other words, in my perfect world, let the kid do it. Everyone understands, or most normal people understand, it's going to take time. It'll take a few minutes. Let him, let it ride. Let him do it. Let him do it on his own. If he needs help, step in a little bit, but let it be totally his. Let him take ownership. It'll take extra time. Okay, but the kid will feel proud, even if it takes time. He sh- you shouldn't be breathing down his back. He should not feel a bit of pressure, not an ounce or shred of pressure. Let the kid do it. Let him succeed. Let him fail. But let the kid do it because a kid who does it in in, a, in an inadequate way will feel much better about himself if nobody gets involved and nobody ever, uh, you know, nobody ever conveys to him that he did anything wrong versus feeling that pressure, feeling that intensity. By the way, this happens in Yeshiva. This, this happens in so many areas, and I'm guilty, and parents are guilty more than anybody, where we kind of want our kids, we want to help them, but we think we're helping them, but we're really not because we're really kind of taking over, and the best way to help them sometimes is to just sit back and let them do things their way, even though in our mind it's not ideal, and even though in our mind they messed up, they don't realize it, they're taking their cues from us. So this is a very broad, fundamental conversation. But I want to just, again, stay focused on Galila. Just stay out of the way, let the kid do it. If he needs your help, offer a little bit of help, but don't make him feel pressure, don't breathe down his back, and don't do it for him. Now, let's talk about halacha for a moment. Well, what about tichet de tzibura? Okay, maybe it's tichet de tzibura, so maybe you actually have, and tichet de tzibura, I take it very seriously. I take it extremely seriously. I, I take it because the pais can take tichet de tzibura very seriously. As an example, I believe it's a Ramah, or I believe that there is a, a tzad in pais and the pais do mention the possibility on Afraid of Hanukkah, everybody, by the way. I, I, I should have mentioned this earlier, but Afraid of Hanukkah, and uh, I do actually want to give a couple of shiurim, post them on 
the hotline uh, about uh, Hanukkah, Blineder. That is my hope. So we'll see if that happens. There's still a little bit of time, although we're running out of time here. But um, there is a thought in the Paiskim, I think, that even putting in between aliyahs, putting the cover of the Sefer Torah, covering the Sefer Torah in between aliyahs, uh, is actually just the amount of time to put it on and take it off. Someone wants to make that point to me. So that just shows you that takes seconds, okay? That shows you how seriously we take it. So I'm in favor of that. So a couple of things. Number one, there are other areas of davening sometimes that'll drag out. And it's like, if you're worried about there are other areas where you can kind of cut corners. Okay, but what about Galila? Well, uh, I don't know that that's what's going through the Gabbai's head. The Gabbai's thinking, oh, Tirch de Oh, wait a second. What about the boy's feelings? Oh, well, Tirch de Tzibura, that, that, that takes precedent. That trumps it. I don't know. Yeah, I got to ask a shyly. You have to ask a rough. I'm not convinced that he's going through all that in his head. I think he just wants to move it along. But it, it, there might be, you might be right. There might be an issue of Tirch de Tzibura. So, to me, what if somebody's slow? What if there's a slow balkairi? Do you make him go quicker out Like, what if they're just thinking, what if somebody, psicha, just takes a long time? To me, if you're letting something play out, you, you got a 13-year-old boy to do galila, and it takes him longer, that, I wouldn't think that's tich de and certainly ask your rav, but I wouldn't think so, because that he's doing what he does in a natural way. Some people are slower, some people are faster. As long as you keep it moving, as long as he's doing everything that he can do, Within reason. I'm not talking about it takes 20 minutes to do Galila. So I'm not convinced that there's an issue of Tirch de Tzibura there. But if that's really what's going on, well, okay. So maybe you don't appoint the kid to do Galila or something. I don't know. I find it difficult to believe that Tirch de Tzibura would enable us to pressure the kid. And if I'm correct, and I think it hurts the kid's feelings, I think it's actually unhealthy for the kid. I think it's emotionally unhealthy. And uh, if that's true, then you have a conflict between Tirch de Tzibura and the emotional health and well-being of the child. I don't know what you do with that, but it's really troublesome to me because I really see these kids sometimes. I feel like, and if you think that I'm overreacting, okay, sometimes I tend to do that, but I actually think that we underrate this. I actually think we, uh, you know, as adults, authorities, um, and depends on the kids. Some kids are more sensitive than others, but we sometimes rush children or get involved or take control and hurt children's feelings. And we mean we have the best intentions. We mean very well. We mean sincerely trying to help. But it, it can really be damaging. So I think we actually, this is something that we don't pay enough attention to. All right, moving on here. Like I said, uh, Trump accused Casey DeSantis. Uh, she was on Fox News, and he says that she tried to spread this information and claim that people could come from outside of Iowa and vote in the Iowa caucuses, even though they don't live in Iowa. She later clarified, but I want you to first listen to the clip and tell me what you think she meant. Listen to this clip. Uh, we have a huge coalition across the United States of America of mothers and grandmoms. When the governor was reelected, uh, we had a coalition of 1.1 million mothers and grandmoms in the state of Florida. That was the largest that had ever been done in the, the history of our state and probably, I would argue, across yeah. the nation. We're asking all of these moms and grandmoms to come from wherever it might be, North Carolina, South Carolina, <laughs> and to descend upon the state of Iowa to be a part of the caucus because you do not have to be a resident of Iowa to be able to participate in the caucus. So moms and grandmoms are going to be able to come and be a part and to let their voice be heard in support of Ron DeSantis. You do not need to be a member, of, to be a resident of Iowa in order to participate in the caucus. You can't be, you can't make this stuff up. You cannot make this stuff up. So what did she mean by that? So Trump says, well, she was telling people, and it certainly sounds this way, to participate in the caucus. She was telling people, come from North Carolina, South Carolina. You don't have to live in Iowa. And you could just come, if you like DeSantis, then come and vote. I don't care 
where you live. So here Trump said, Trump said, quote, the DeSantis's specifically said they were calling on their campaign coalition of out-of-state, non-Iowa residents to illegally descend on the caucus and try to cast a vote. The Trump campaign strongly condemns their dirty and illegal tactics and implores all Trump supporters to be aware that DeSantis's only stated plot to rig the caucus through fraud. I can't get over this. So here's what Casey DeSantis said after what she posted on Twitter. She said, um, while voting in the Iowa caucus is limited to registered voters in Iowa, there is a way for others to participate. I'm calling on mamas and grandmamas from all over the country to come volunteer in support of Ron DeSantis. So she's saying she never meant that they should actually vote. She just meant they should volunteer, like come and, and, and support DeSantis and get other people. So I, you you be the, the judge. I kind of listened a couple of times and I'm, I'm back and forth. I'm a little bit torn. But what did she mean? You don't have to live in Iowa to come. People know they don't have to live in Iowa to come and campaign for Ron DeSantis. If that's what she meant, then certainly was bizarre the way she said it. Um, all right. Uh, wow. We're, we're really late here. All right. New York City will spend $4.3 billion on hotels and services for illegals this year. That is revised way higher than they first thought. Spending on hotels and other services for illegals. In New York City, that's going to hit $4.3 billion by the end of 2023. That is an increase of 48% over earlier estimates. So billions of dollars more than they used to think. And Mayor Eric Adams, he, uh, you know, it's unbelievable what's going on here because he's actually hiding. He's hiding the amount that they're spending on illegals. New York City has a contract with the Roosevelt Hotel, which is just disgraceful. Literally, the Roosevelt Hotel has become a, a, a processing facility for illegals. They call it a migrant processing facility. And key details of the, they, they redact and they hide and bury how much the city's paying per room per day. Okay. They say it's a trade secret. Hotels advertise their rates publicly, but New York City is saying it's a trade secret. We refuse to say how much we're paying the Roosevelt Hotel per room per day, uh, for illegals. Now, now usually the city is forced to be transparent and to show all their expenses to taxpayers. But the contract with the Roosevelt Hotel was created through a city-controlled health and hospitals corporation rather than a real city agency. So it's a private agency that's being subcontracted by the city. And therefore, um, they, the, the, the New York City does not have to divulge and disclose how much they're paying the Roosevelt Hotel. It's disgraceful, but it's, it's $4.3 billion is now the estimate the total expense for the year 2023. It's an insane amount of money. Meanwhile, Adams went down to Washington, D.C. to beg the Biden administration, beg the federal government for financial assistance. He's been begging them again and again and saying, this is your fault and begging them for money. And he came back. He says, they're not going to they're not going to play ball. He says the Biden administration, they are not going to give us money um, to to help us deal with the migrant crisis. And by the way, this is going to be Adams downfall by far. He said, quote, after I left Washington, D.C., this is last week, I did not leave with optimism. I left with the cold reality. Help is not on the way. At this moment, it's going to be up to New Yorkers to continue to navigate this challenge that we are facing. Um, Adams has begged the federal government again and again for money. Well, they're not going to give you money. Uh, and now um, his poll numbers have plummeted. A Quinnipiac poll shows Eric Adams has 28 percent approval rating, the lowest mayoral approval rating in New York City since the polling began at Quinnipiac in 1996. Here's what's amazing. Uh, the governor, the mayor of Memphis, Tennessee, the, the mayor of El Paso, Texas, they don't need to go and beg Joe Biden. The mayor of Boca Raton, Florida, Cleveland, Ohio, Las Vegas, okay, um, Raleigh, North Carolina, they don't have to go and beg Biden for money to deal with the migrant crisis. You know why? Because they don't have a migrant crisis, because they don't have a sanctuary city, because they don't give illegals tons of government funding, all these programs, free education, free health care, free food, free hotel stays. 
More money, literally, they give them more money than most people earn in a year's salary. Okay, very simple formula. Okay, it, it just don't give them the free stuff and they'll leave. So Eric Adams, he's going to go down as perhaps one of the worst. Ma- I can't say he's the worst mayor in New York City history because he's never going to be as bad as David Dinkins, I don't think. But one of the worst. And I think Andrew Cuomo, Andrew Cuomo is now hinting he's going to run for mayor in New York City. I think he's going to run on a platform to clean up this mess. And I think he's going to win. And that's going to be pretty, pretty amazing to watch. All right, like I said, there have been over 75 attacks on U.S. troops. We'll have to get into it um, another time. But, um, you know, the, the, the most recent, the embassy in Baghdad, U.S. embassy in Baghdad was attacked by mortar fire on Friday morning. Explosions were heard near the embassy. They attacked the U.S. embassy in Baghdad. And, of course, Biden is doing nothing to respond except he can, And this was done by Iranian forces. 77 attacks. And Biden is saying to Israel, please, 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 I'm begging you. Please don't bring Iran into this. Iran's into it. Iran is more than into it. Iran is the one running the whole thing. And Biden just keeps giving them billions and billions of dollars. And I do believe a nuclear deal with Iran will happen before November 2024. That's going to do it, which is which is beyond reprehensible. The fact that it's even being discussed, that's going to do it for today. And we will see you next time.